Anyway, I'm so thankful for friends in ministry and 11 years later, still playing, honoring the Lord. Thankful for that. Pray with me one more time if you would. God, thank you so much for these good gifts you've given to us that we can listen to songs about salvation that is only by your grace as we would indeed come with empty hands. We can hear these kinds of things and they they resonate in our hearts because they talk about salvation, the very salvation your word talks about through your son. And thank you that we can sing as well and we can enjoy friendship and fellowship even over long periods of time. It's such a good and gracious gift from you that you've, you've given us these kinds of experiences and you've given us these relationships. But most of all today, we're thankful for giving us your son so that we might have life. And now as we study your word together so that we might understand the great life that we have in him and so that we might understand him better, may this be a great time of worship as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was Larry King who was famous or well-known for being a talk show host who was once asked himself who he would interview if he could interview anyone who's ever existed throughout history. And Larry King didn't flinch. He said, if I could interview anyone, I would interview Jesus Christ. And then he said, and I would ask him one question. And the one question I would ask Jesus Christ is, are you indeed virgin born? And then, interestingly enough, King went on to say, the answer to that question would explain history to me. Interesting. And I would suggest, right. Larry King couldn't be more on the money when it comes to that particular evaluation. If Jesus Christ is virgin born, it changes everything. It changes your perspective of history, but not only that, in addition, it changes your perspective on salvation, it changes your perspective on life, it changes absolutely everything if Jesus was virgin born. And that's because of all of the implications of him being virgin born or all of the implications of him not being virgin born if he weren't. This morning we're going to talk about the virgin birth of Jesus in Matthew 1. We already read the passage. And what we'll do is we look at this drama of Jesus' supernatural birth, his supernatural conception, we'll be able to see Christ for who he really is. We'll be able to see, yes, indeed, it, it is true, and yes, indeed, by implication, it changes everything. So we'll talk about the virgin birth of Jesus today, or we might say the virgin conception of Jesus, as well as virgin birth. Just for clarity's sake, we're not talking about the immaculate conception today, because the immaculate conception is not about Jesus a lot of people think it is. The Immaculate Conception is talking about Mary. It's a Roman Catholic doctrine that teaches that Mary was preserved from original sin, that she had no sin. So we're not talking about Immaculate Conception. That's about Mary, which is not true because even in the Luke passage we read together today, she refers to Jesus as her Savior, and so she indeed needs to be saved from her sin. We're not talking about that this morning. We're talking about virgin birth, virgin conception of Jesus, not 
Mary. But as we do, we'll see Christ for who He really is. And no doubt by, by application, we will stop and talk about history and how it does change our view of history and how it changes our view, quite frankly, on everything. The significance of the virgin birth of Jesus. It comes really in, in what I've outlined as five different segments or five different movements. It flows together nicely, but for sake of organization, we'll look at these different segments, these different uh, movements in this drama. The first would be the reality of the virgin birth, and it's in verse 18. So we see the reality of the virgin birth where we read, and if you just join me, I'd invite you to do so. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 is a preview. It it, it tells us the rest of the story ahead of time. So it's meant to be a preview of of all that's going to be unpacked. This is from Joseph's perspective, emphasizing the, the, the virgin birth of Christ and therefore his sinlessness, therefore his divinity, as well as other things. But, but he, he tells us right away in verse 18 at the end, it's from the Holy Spirit. And in one sense, I'd like to ignore that just for now. And, and, and notice how loaded verse 18 is. I would say how, how pregnant it is with meaning, but that would really be trying to outdo myself. Verse, just notice every word matters in verse 18. I mean, it is, it is this loaded preview. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, She's committed, even legally committed to Joseph before they came together. So just in case there's, there's any question, it's before they came together, she was found to be with child. And that, that is huge. The implications are huge. She is betrothed to Joseph. That, that means there's an engagement, but it's like an engagement with teeth. You know, this is, this is a super engagement because legally they're even uh, considered husband and wife. Even the next verse refers to, to him as her husband. Before they're married, they're husband and wife because it's different than our engagement. And you've heard this before if you've been a Christian very long, but by way of review, if need be, to be betrothed, committed, legally bound together. There may have been monies exchanged already by families. In order to break the betrothal, there has to be an official divorce. It's a legal matter. And so this is a, a different than just, you know, I want the ring back. Um, this, is, this is far different from that. This is a, a serious matter for there to be betrothal. Before they came together, no doubt, that's not just living under the same roof together. And no doubt in light of what he's going to say, before they came together physically. Before there was a sexual relationship between Mary and Joseph, she was found to be with child. Now, that's a problem, right? That's more than a little awkward. This is a huge problem. This is a huge problem for you if you're Joseph. We'll say more about that in just a little while. But we do have those last four words from the Holy Spirit. So it's awkward. We have a pregnant virgin, but then it says, by way of explanation, from the Holy Spirit. Scandalous for Joseph to have this wife. 
who's pregnant, and he knows it's not his baby. But there's something more to it. It's not due to promiscuity or adultery. It's due to divine intervention. Put yourself in Joseph's position, though. Well, that's what happens in the remaining verses. We see it from Joseph's perspective. Think what it would be like to be Joseph. Maybe he's 14, 15. We don't know. They got married at young ages back then. Pretty young. How about that? Maybe he's older. We don't know. Some speculate and say he had to be older. That explains why he's not around because he died. That's really speculation. We have no idea, but it was typical to be married young in teen years. And so here is Joseph. He loves this woman. Put yourself in his position. He loves Mary. She's expressed her love for him. They want to spend the rest of their life together. Families have been involved. There's a serious commitment here. And you find out that she's pregnant. That would be a problem, but it's a bigger problem because you know that it's not your baby. Let's move on now to number two. The second segment of this drama is in verse 19, telling us about the supernatural birth of Jesus. Verse 19 reads, And her husband Joseph, see he's called the husband, being a just man or a fair man or an honorable man, a righteous man, he's a God-fearing Jew is what it's saying, and, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. That's what I would do. I hope. I hope I would be at least righteous and, and godly and kind and gracious enough to, to be like Joseph. It's probably what most of you would do. All right. I love this woman more than anyone on the planet. She's expressed her love for me. She's obviously not as committed to me as she's said. It seems like the best thing to do is to do the divorce and, and to do it quietly. I'm not going to call for stricter execution, which the law would actually allow for. I'm not going to break the law. I'm going to get witnesses and... Our text doesn't elaborate on those kinds of things, but it'll be low-key. He's a righteous man. And by the way, the righteous man doesn't really want to be married to an adulterous woman. And then everything changes <laughs> as we move to number three. Or I should say nothing changes. Circumstances don't change at all, but because of divine revelation, because he gets this whole thing interpreted for him with, with some confidence, everything changes as far as his perspective is concerned. And we move to the third segment of this drama of Jesus' supernatural birth, the theological significance of the virgin birth the theological significance of the virgin birth in verses 20 and 21. Look here at verse 20. But as he considered these things, I wonder what that looked like. As he fretted over these things, as he was brokenhearted over these things, as he stewed about these things, as he let his mind travel in who knows all kinds of places, what in the world has just happened to me? 
I don't know. The text doesn't say those things. Apparently, they're not important. But it does say, as he considered these things, we might try to relate. Behold! Something extraordinary. It's the behold word. And then something happens that's not normal. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. That ties to the genealogy before in verse 16. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And think about it. He had every reason to fear to take Mary as his wife. I would fear as he would because of the scandalous talk that would go on or the talk that would go on about it. My reputation would be totally shot. I would also fear, and so would you if you're Joseph, because you are marrying a woman who has already, in effect, committed adultery against you. You would be afraid to marry this woman. And he says, don't do it. And think about this too. As far as convincing Joseph, it wouldn't have been very convincing if Cupid showed up, you know. You know, the fat little, you know, chickified dude thing angel, you know, with a little deal. I don't know. But that's not the biblical perspective of an angel. I say it because, you know, you think, I don't know. I still don't know if I would have bought it. I think you would have bought it if you think about what biblical angels are and what they look like. Good shot, buddy. (laughs) Cupid. (laughs) If you didn't see it, you have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) Think about what a a biblical angel is. They're either described as these these mighty, uh, fear-inducing beings powerful, sometimes animal-like, monster-like, scary, supernatural beings, or they're described as very masculine, strong, men-like. And so it's not Cupidish; it's strong, an angel. Behold, this isn't normal. It's not like Joseph, you know, has been touched by an angel on a regular basis. This is not normative, like we would might want to make it normative. This is unique. This is bold. Joseph, who knows what it would have been like. The hair on the back of his neck would have stood up. This is extraordinary. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. No doubt it has Joseph's attention. This is a big deal. Extraordinarily so. And he talks about the origin of what's happened here in verse 20. Look there toward the end of verse 20. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We understand what he's saying. Hey, Joseph, it's not that she is a fornicator. It's not that she has betrayed you and your commitment to each other. No, it's not that. God has supernaturally intervened here, son of David, man who is in the right genealogy. There's something extraordinary here. There's something that's really standing out. This is of God. Just just as a quick footnote, it's very, very intriguing to me how bad verse 20 is as a form of mythology. If this is mythology, man, the Bible gets an F-. What I'm getting at is there are these mythological stories of how God impregnates women and it's somehow romantic and it's somehow, you know, emphasizing 
masculinity and, and, and this power of men. and That's how it is in mythology. The Bible's not a book of mythology. It's not even close, shouldn't even be mentioned in the same sentence. By divine orchestration, Mary is pregnant. This is not written by someone who's looking to have a deity that looks a lot like he would want to be someday. The Bible's not that. The Bible acknowledges supernatural and God intervening, but it is not even anything like the religions of men. Then the purpose comes in verse 21. Verse 21 is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I hope people accuse me of citing it too often. (laughs) I love verse 21. She will bear a son, the angel says, and you shall call his name Jesus. First emphasis is on the word you. Joseph, you will name him. You will name him and you will name him Jesus. Before we get to the Jesus part, Joseph, you will name him. Which is to suggest, Joseph, you will accept him. You will accept him as your son. You will not shun him. You will not see this as scandalous. You will name him. You will accept him. And you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus means God saves which fits the purpose in verse 21. Here's the punchline. For He will save His people from their sins. That's my favorite part. Name Him Jesus. Why? Because Jesus means God saves, but then He actually says in the, in the text, for He will save His people from their sins. How about that? That's just you know the gospel encapsulated. How about the fact that every time they would say, Jesus, they're saying, Gospel... Every time anyone called him by his name, they're saying, God saves. Not that there weren't other people who had this name, but he's the ultimate Jesus. God saves. Name him this because, how about this? He will. You know, make that 16 font. Make it 26 font. Make it 126 font. He will save his people from their sins. It's definitive. It's absolute. It's strong. It is sure. It is bold. How about, it's very complimentary to what we've been studying in Romans 8 and in Romans 9. God doesn't try to save. God doesn't make savable. God doesn't do His very best. Call His name Jesus because He's really going to make a college go at it. No! Call Him Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. You know, start doing this. That's what I do when I get excited. Yeah! This is a great compliment to Romans 8. That when God tries to do something, He's successful. He does it. He will save His people from their sins. And if He won't save His people from their sins, then we should come up with another name for Him. But He will. I love that. It's strong. It's bold. It's rich. It's meaningful. If you will, Romans 8 is just an elaboration on Matthew one twenty one. 
I've referenced it recently because of our studies in Romans 8, but, but how about John chapter 6, verse 39, when Jesus says, I should lose nothing of all that He, the Father, has given me, but raise it up on the last day. It's a great complimentary text. All the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will, that is with certainty, I'll raise Him up on the last day. He will save His people from their sins. How great is that? Think about that when you look at the babe in the manger. The virgin-born one. What is he here to do? He is here to save his people from their sins. It's sure. It's bold. It's absolute. I do also love the fact that the context would have us to know that this is not just in reference to Jews. In the genealogy that comes beforehand, he names multiple Gentiles. The key figures end up being the Jews because it's in the line of David. He's son of David. But he mentions multiple Gentiles. And so clearly, I would say, in the flow and the context, his people is not just a reference to Jews. Yes, Matthew is a Jewish gospel. It's definitely aiming aiming at a Jewish uh, audience. But in light of the flow of things, and we could go to other passages, but in light of the flow of things, I would say included in the his people would be Gentiles. And I'm pretty happy because I think I'm a Gentile. (laughs) Although someone has been, multiple people have been telling me lately, if your name is Abendroth, you're probably a Jew. And I say, say what? You know? I like to spend money. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I do like bagels and locks, so maybe they were onto something. But then they say, but you're a secular Jew. Those people that didn't take Bible names and the government made them take names and those who were ungodly picked names from nature. Abendroth, red sun, setting sun. So here I am. If I am Jewish and I have any Jewish blood in my, in my body, I'm a defunct bad Jew. And uh, you know what? It doesn't matter because we're all sinners and whether I'm a Jew or a Gentile. In fact, the Bible says whether Jew or Gentile, Pat doesn't know which one he is. And <laughs> I'm just glad that his people can include both. How did I get off on that? <laughs> See, you guys don't even have to pay extra for that. First service didn't hear anything about my weird last name. You guys heard about it. And uh, anyway, sorry. Pray for me. Pray for my wife. <laughs> that would be better. Oh, boy. Now what should we talk about? <laughs> What we need to talk about is what's also emphasized in verse 21, and that is what we are saved from. It's so good that it's right here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. For he will save his people from their sins. So when you read the gospel according to Matthew, if you read through the whole thing, and you see Jesus doing great things, helping people, being an awesome example even for those who would be his disciples, yes, 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 yes! But you've got to know as you read it, first and foremost, He came to save His people from their sins. So He comes first and foremost, ultimate purpose as the virgin-born one, to be a Savior. Not to be an example, though He was that. He's the Savior. He's the one who's coming to live a perfectly righteous life. 
He is obeying the law, fulfilling the law, as it says in the Sermon on the Mount. I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Well, he's doing that as the one who's going to save us. We need righteousness, so we need someone to fulfill the law for us if we're going to be saved. And that's what he does. And then, yes, indeed, eventually, as he keeps pointing to the cross in Matthew, he goes to the cross. Why? Because he came to save his people from their sins, and now he's going to absorb the wrath of God in our place. And then he's going to rise again from the dead so that we can be brought to newness of life. And so please remember when you read Matthew's account, please remember virgin birth so he could come as the spotless lamb, so he could come as the sinless one, so he could come and he could avoid, if you will, Romans 5.12, which is gaining a sin nature from his relationship to Adam. God designed this birth to be unique so that he would not have a sin nature, so that he could be the perfect spotless lamb of God to fulfill all righteousness, so that he could be all of this for us and save his people from their sins. I mean, it's just, it's bubbling over. It's, oozing is a bad word. What's a positive word? You know, it's just gushing with significance and meaning, verse 21 is. And we should love this Christ who came to save his people from their sins. He didn't come to save his people from all of the other tough stuff in life, as bad as it is. Ultimately, it's to save them from their sins, which is to suggest, ultimately, it is to save us from God, God's wrath, because the wages of sin is death. And remember, when we get to the cross, he is absorbing the wrath. He is saving us from that. Again, when you look at the baby and you think about the baby born of a virgin, to save his people from their sins, which implies the penalty for their sins, which comes from God. And if you want to see how severe and serious that is, then skip ahead to the end of Matthew and see what happens there at Golgotha. Christ is awesome. We, we, we need to be moved to worship him and exalt him because He is this God who saves His people from their sins. When you hear the name Jesus, a good challenge would be just to remember what that means. Remember Matthew 121. Use Matthew 121 as you talk about Christ. He came to save His people from their sins. Virgin birth. If there is no virgin birth, by the way, then... He can't save His people from their sins because in actuality, He's either not really a human being, He's just like a ghost, some kind of Gnostic thing. He didn't really become one of us. He really needs to be born of Mary. He really needs to be because He's going to save His people from their sins. He has to become one of us. But if He's one of us in the line of Adam, now we've got another problem because now He's got a sin nature and He can't be the pure spotless Lamb of God. He can't perfectly fulfill the law of God. We've got to have virgin birth, unique conception, unique birth, so that he could be one of us. He's got to be born of a woman. Galatians 4, I think it is. But he also has to be sinless because he has to be our righteousness like we learn in Romans. There's so much deep and good theology just all converging and and built into this passage. I love it. I love this passage. A fourth segment in this drama of Jesus' supernatural birth is the prophetic fulfillment of the virgin birth. We see it in verses 22 and 23. All this took place. 
to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Quoting now from Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, there we have it again. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's huge for Joseph. Oh, this is fulfillment of, of what we've been waiting for and talking about. Okay, this, this makes sense, Isaiah 7.14. Oh, and by the way, if you're Joseph, this is huge because Isaiah 7.14 isn't the only verse in the Old Testament and it's not unrelated. We're, we're going to end up going back and back and back and back and back, eventually back to Genesis. And, and we, we've got a promise of this there as far as the one who would come as a Savior. And that's going to launch us, us way forward to Revelation. You know what? Now, now Larry King is right. It changes history. Joseph can be okay with this because he's, he, he can say, okay, this, this is it. It does change history. And if I can, since I brought it up, I'll, I'll go off on that tangent for a second. It changes history in a lot of different ways. Just, just basically and fundamentally, the virgin birth of Jesus, because it is key to God's drama of redemption and fulfillment, it changes history even in the most, most basic level. It causes us to not be Eastern in our thinking. We don't think history is circular or cyclical, just going around in circles and all what comes around goes around. And No, we don't think that way. Because if you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, which is fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, which is then leading to more fulfillments, you're linear in your view of history. This is just supporting Genesis reality. Point in time, moving throughout history, and there's an end inside as well through this Redeemer who will fulfill all prophecy. So it does change history in that sense. But it changes history in so many other senses too that th this is the one. This is the guy. This is the fulfillment of God's gracious and loving plan. It fulfills prophetic history. This is huge for Joseph. It's huge for us. It's huge for us. This is it. He is the one. This is the fulfillment of God's gracious promise. As He's going to uphold His righteous law, He is going to judge sinners. But He's also this gracious and loving God, and, and so He's going to provide a perfect substitute, a sinless substitute, to absorb His wrath on their behalf so that we might know Him, so that we might be credited with His perfection, with His righteousness. It changes history. It changes everything for us too. Tied to the virgin birth. There's so many different angles to take this and look at this from. By the way, just as a, as a footnote, I almost hate to mention it because I don't want to take away from the splendor of it. But sometimes, I'll, I'll mention it anyway, but sometimes when you, you read Newsweek or whatever it is this time of year, or Easter time, they, they publish these same articles. They could just change the authors. They're always kind of the same, um, typically with a, a strong liberal bent. And, oh, new Bible discovery, or we interviewed so-and-so, and, and did you know that the Hebrew word in Isaiah 7.14 doesn't have to be translated virgin, it could be translated young woman. Oh, wow. 
really? I'm shaking in my boots, man. I might not be a Christian anymore. You know? It's nothing new. Just gets recycled, rehashed. But we kind of forget to get educated and, and, and see it for what it is. It's true. Isaiah 7, 14, the Hebrew word translated virgin could be translated young woman. Some translations actually translate it young woman. And you know what? I'm fine with that. You know why? Because there is absolutely no question whatsoever for a second in anyone's mind what Matthew 1 says. He uses the word for virgin and everything in the context says virgin. He hadn't known her yet. I mean, there's, there's no question whether somebody believes Matthew 1 or not. There's no question what the words say and what the words mean. I don't care what you do to try to undermine the Christian life. I do, actually. <laughs> but with Isaiah 7... Because when he uses it of Jesus in Matthew 1, it's clearly talking about virgin without any question. Just a footnote for you to know. When you get panicked about somebody finding some new idea, first of all, it's probably not new. And second of all, just stop and think and everything will be okay. <laughs> there will be an answer. Let's move on to the fifth and final segment in the drama of Jesus' supernatural birth, and that is the supernatural response to the virgin birth. And now we see this from John. We've seen his natural response, now a supernatural response in verse 20, 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Pretty simple. He just did what God said. Divine revelation through an angel fits with Old Testament prophecy. He just responds. He responds the right way and, and does the right thing. He takes Mary as his wife. He keeps her a virgin until she gave birth, which would, would cause there to be no question whatsoever then. And he named him Jesus. Maybe just a couple of things to think about and trying to wrap all this together and think about it in the here and now. I know I began with my illustration, uh, introduction about Larry King. Think with me if you would because this helps us to, to see the significance of the virgin birth and also to see it in its place. What if he could interview Jesus? What if Jesus just showed up? CNN. And he said, are you indeed virgin born? And Jesus said, yes. Would it change Larry King's view of history? Would it change Larry King's heart? Would it change anything? Apart from something in addition to that happening, like God intervening in a saving way, my answer is no. My answer is, it's a smokescreen. It's a dodge. And I know that it's a dodge. 
Listen to what Jesus said. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, which is shorthand for the Bible, if they don't listen to the Bible, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. End of quotation. Luke 16.31 Rich man and Lazarus. Jesus giving that illustration. Please send someone back to my family from the dead and then they'll believe. And Jesus in effect says, no, they won't. If they don't believe the Bible, they won't believe someone who's risen from the dead. And you go, whoa, hadn't thought about that before. It's a commentary on the human heart. We try to come up with rationale and reasons. If you just give me something supernatural, then I just need more evidence, then. It's not true. How about all the people who were on planet Earth when Jesus was on planet Earth? And by and large, they didn't embrace Him by faith as Messiah and view history entirely different. So we're kind of naive when we think in those terms and talk in those terms because there's no historical precedent for that. In fact, it's the opposite. What we need is for God to supernaturally intervene and take the blinders off that Satan has put there, a la 2 Corinthians 4, and to, 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 to grant graciously faith and repentance. We don't need more evidence we have plenty. We just looked at Matthew 1. It gives plenty of evidence. It gives clear rationale. But what we need is for God then to open eyes and for God to work. So maybe we can end on these two principles. The virgin birth is essential. It's vital. If you don't have the virgin birth, you, you don't have sinless substitute. If you don't have virgin birth, you don't have actual humanity of Jesus. You have Gnosticism and, and you have no salvation. Read First John. So we've got to have virgin birth for those reasons. But remember, just the fact of the virgin birth or someone just believing the fact of the virgin birth doesn't save people. There's more to it. It's essential, but it's not the only thing. Because this Jesus grew up, he talked, he drew the line in the sand, and having lived a perfectly righteous life, he died a sinner's death, though he was perfect, and then he rose again from the dead, and he calls people to believe in him and him alone. As a matter of fact, I didn't bring it up earlier, but even in the grammar in verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. Even Greek grammarians tell us that that emphasizes exclusivity. He and He alone will save His people from their sins. You've got to trust in Him. You've got to trust in Him and Him alone. You've got to come to Him on His terms. Which, yes, does involve believing in the virgin birth, but only believing in the virgin birth and that's it doesn't save you. You're just agreeing with reality and facts, but then it's a matter of embracing Him, trusting Him in His perfect work. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about Christianity. And what we have in the Bible is enough. 
We don't need more according to His own words in Luke 16.31. When you think about the baby Jesus, if you're a Christian, be amazed that He came as a virgin to fulfill God's perfect plan. And be amazed that He came as not one who's going to try hard, but He came to save His people from their sins and, and we should have assurance and certainty if you're not a Christian and you read these words, my urging to you would be that you would trust in Him and Him alone, the One who grew up, the One who fulfilled all righteousness, the One who died, the One who rose again from the dead, the One who and who alone came to save His people from their sins. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. It changes everything. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for an opportunity we have to look at Matthew chapter 1. And more than that, thank you for the opportunity we have to, to hear your word, which Jesus affirmed was where the power is. It's an, it is a sufficient testimony of reality. But we need your spirit. We need your spirit to open our eyes if they haven't been opened. And to lead us and to guide us. May we never think of the baby Jesus and the virgin birth and all of its implications the same way ever again. For his glory and honor. And in his name, amen.